ready to take a ride. Grab your coffee and strap yourself in. If you listen, we can hear God's plan. Because the show is about to begin. You're listening, you're listening to the Omega Man Radio Network. Can you hear me? You're coming through good. Am I coming through okay? Yeah, I got you loud and clear. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome aboard. We're going to continue our marathon today that we uh, launch at 10 a.m. Eastern every day, which is 9 a.m. Central, Monday through Friday. And we're excited to be here with Pastor Carl Henderson, coming to you from Texas. Brother Carl, welcome back, my friend. It's good to be back. Uh, we've got this next hour together, and uh, would you like to open us up in prayer? Yes, I would. Uh, Father God, as we study today about how you work in the past, Lord, we pray that you will help us to understand it for our presence. We have study of, of what you consider righteousness, what you consider a man of God, what you look for in a man of God, and, and what you expect of a man of God. Uh, Lord, I pray that we will apply it to our lives so we'll not just be uh, aware of the information, but we will become men and women of God in every way, and that we'll become those who have an obedient, love-faith relationship with you. Lord, as we study as how you've worked in the past, and as we try to understand your word, we pray that you'll open the eyes of our heart so that we can understand, help us to grasp this information, not to build on it, not to make too much of it, but to hear what you want us to hear and to do what you want us to do with our life. This is our prayer today and always in Jesus' name. I say amen to that. Everybody, welcome aboard. We're excited to be here again with Brother Carl Henderson. And uh, last time on the program, we were getting caught back up. And uh, today, I'm going to turn the mic over to Brother Carl. Brother Carl, the mic is yours. Bring the word. Thank you. So I'm going to be teaching today from Genesis chapter 6 and talk about Hopefully, we'll have time to get through two uh, important subjects that uh, that I've recently kind of had some revelations on. I've read through the Bible dozens and dozens of times, and especially the New Testament. Uh, I used to read through it uh, once a month for nearly uh, nearly for four years. And uh, but again, the, 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 this word is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. It it keeps revealing things to you, and you keep finding things that you never noticed before. And uh, as you uh, go through the scriptures, come something I come across just uh, just recently that I want to share with your people, and then some of it I had some information on, and and uh, and so we can combine those two things. So when I look at the scriptures, I always try to read read it in its uh, in its historical, literary, and uh, historical, literary, and then of course read it contextually. In other words, you have to know who God is talking to. And then you have to know uh, so so that you can understand it because if you can't go then and there and understand what he was saying at that time and that place to those people, there's no way you're going to jump into uh, two or four or six thousand years later and plug it into your life and understand it. You have to kind of you have to understand it as it was originally written. That's what we call the historical context. The second thing we had to do when we look at the scriptures is we have to look at the literary context. Uh, frankly, I'm um, I'm uh, very frustrated sometimes with Christians who are constantly um, taking a, a, something out of a prophetic literature, which is always full of symbolism, or something that's in po- the poetry sections of the Bible or the wisdom literature, 
uh, in the Bible, and then we're going to pull that out of context and make that, uh, um, you know, a verse that they can apply to their life, and oftentimes uh, misapplying it to their lives. And I use this illustration a lot. I'll use it one more time. If I uh, if I was to say to my wife, uh, Rose, and, and write it on a card and send it to her, give it, send it to her, give it to her, and uh, and I was to say, roses are red, violets are blue. Even when I drink coffee, I think of you. Well, anyone with has any idea how poetry works is the roses are red and violets are blue and the coffee and all those things are really irrelevant. What I'm saying in that is that I'm trying to come up with something that rhymes. And that's the same thing that happens all through Psalms um, and uh, the other poetry sections of our Bibles. I'm trying to say something that rhymes. And I'm speaking about not about coffee or roses or violets. Uh, what I'm saying is, uh, roses are red and violet are blue. They're just, I'm trying to set up where this, where the next stanza of this poem is go- going. And even when I drink coffee, I think of you. Now, if you were a fundamentalist Christian today and you read that out of the Bible, you would think, hey guys, get your coffee. Let's drink up. We need to think about our wives. I mean, my relationship's not good with my wife. I need to drink more coffee. I need to drink as much coffee as I can. The more coffee I drink, the more I'll think of my wife. That's a classic case of a misapplication of a, of, a, of a scripture. Of course, in this case, it's not scripture, it's a poem. But we have those kind of things all through the scriptures as well. Uh, what it really means is when you're doing something as mundane as drinking coffee, your mind often goes back to your wife. So that would be the right way to understand um, poetry. Instead of saying, well, that's it, I'm standing on this verse. Well, that verse is a poem. It didn't apply to you. It's not even talking about what you're talking about. So you're really misapplying scripture. So the first two parts is we have to keep it in the historical context. We have to keep it in the type of literature that we're looking at. So if we're looking at narrative literature, it's going to be very literal uh, to what was going on at that time and that place. Uh, And if we look at uh, prophetic or or poetry or those kind of things, it's full of symbolism. And, (coughs) excuse me, I think Christians sort of, make themselves look foolish in the eyes of the world and in each, each other's eyes, too, because we're not all we're not all silly and blind. When we start applying um, a, a prophetic things that's full of symbolism and trying to make them literal and trying to make them, squeeze them into our time and place when, in fact, they've already been fulfilled somewhere else in the scriptures. So all of these things, and the last point you talk about is context. The other common mistake we think is take a scripture, pull it out of context, rip it from its context, and then apply it somewhere else and make it say something it doesn't mean. Uh, oftentimes when I'm teaching new Bible students as an evangelist, I do a lot of a, a lot of discipling, a lot of Bible studies, and working with newer Christians, which is really really my joy. Uh, one, because they're teachable. Two, because they're, they're passionate and they have there's such a, a fire and a zeal in them to know more about God. And, and uh, all of them that come to faith, you know, the number one uh, thing that I hear from so many of them is, uh, you know, uh, the regret about having wasted their lives. I've, I've just brought some people to faith and just baptized some people here a few months ago who are 23, 21 years of age, and they're telling me they've wasted so much of their life as, as sinners. That's the right passion that a person should have. You want to please God that even though you haven't been on earth long, you still feel like you wasted a lot of your life. Uh, God forbid, uh, you know, God forbid someone's 40 or 50 years of age that they really have a legitimate case of I've wasted so much of my life uh, when they come to faith. So these are a couple of the things that are, are important to understand is the historical, literary, and then the context. <coughs> Excuse me. The Bible cannot mean something to us or a section of the Bible that we're reading cannot mean something to us that it didn't mean to the original hearer. In other words, it had to have made sense, made sense to the person it was written to, uh, and then we have to understand how it made sense to them and how it applied to them and what it was talking about in their context, in their place. Once we understand that, and we understand the context, we understand the type of literature, then we can apply it to our lives. So we're going to look right now at, um, at a, a place in Genesis chapter 6. Now, the interesting thing is, before the flood, 
I think about 1,800 years pass uh, from, from creation to the flood. But all of that time passes in just eight chapters of the book of Genesis. In other words, we're really getting a very uh, short thumbnail sketch. Moses is basically, uh, as, he, as he records this for us, he's basically laying down the bloodlines from Adam, which will eventually lead to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and to David, and then all the way out to Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of God. So that's really the thing that we're looking for. And of course, he's telling us a little bit about how sin entered the world and what happened after that. He'll talk about the 72 nations that comes out of this, out of the sons of Noah. But all of this is squeezed into, as I said, eight chapters of Genesis. So whereas um, the Bible contains history, the thing to remember, the Bible is not a history book, because if it was a history book, they did a very poor section covering this 1,800 years before the flood, because it only gets eight or nine chapters. And then from Abraham to the uh, captivity in Egypt, that's another, um, let's see if I remember correctly, I'm, I think it's another four or 500 years, uh, 400 years in Egypt, and I think two or 300 years getting there. <coughs> Excuse me. Somehow I, it seems like I come up with a, a little cough this morning. Anyway, so we're going to be looking at Genesis 6, and we recognize we're not going to have as much detail as we would like from the get-go. What we don't have the right to do is fill it in and make up our own details. However, one of the things that we can do is we can use um, some of the um, some of the information that was available from the early Christians, although their writings are not scripture. Their, writing, their writings tell us a lot about the mindset and the way of thinking of the early Christians and how they looked at these scriptures. And many of them were actually the friends, disciples, and acquaintances of the apostles, or they were one generation removed from the apostles. So assuming we get off course by one degree every, uh, every uh, hundred years, they were much closer to the original course than we are today, 2,000 years later. So in that context, we're going to look at some of this. So starting in Genesis 6, it's a very interesting point that people build whole books around uh, with a very little information. So if you're going to build a whole book around this, you're going to have to be very creative, which probably means you're making some errors. But let's look at it together. Genesis 6, we're going to read um, down to about verse 6. Genesis 6, 1 through 6. When man began to increase in number on the earth, and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination on the thoughts of his heart were only evil all the time. And the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. Or <clears throat> some versions say he, he was regret. And then uh, he, he goes on to talk about the coming flood. So I want to talk a little bit about the Nephilim, and I want to look at them in scriptures, and see what they are, because uh, this is a, um, a really an important concept if we're going to understand uh, demons and demonology. So these Nephilim, there's, there's two common views. One's relatively um, modern, kind of coming out of the, um, the Renaissance period where man began to become the major of everything. But uh, the two views is on the Nephilim is, one of the views is that the sons of God were the line of Seth. That was the faithful uh, biblical line in the Bible. <clears throat> that's one of the lines, that the main line that's being traced through the beginning of Genesis from Adam through Seth and his line. The Sethites versus the Cainites, or those that followed Cain. Those were his offspring. <clears throat> so the modern view is, and I want to be quite honest, from the scripture 
you can't really support either one of these views uh, 100%. So that's what I'm, that's really, I, I talked a little about this, is we have to be willing to say we don't exactly know, but this is where the trail seems to lead. Or this is these are the two things. So I'm going to give you the first, the two options. One is that the sons of God were the, were the people of uh, Seth's family and his line who took um, who uh, took women took um, mates wives from the daughters of men from the line of Cain. And so supposedly, according to this theory, this produced these great men, also called giants or Nephilim, and. Uh, if that was true, the same thing would still be fairly common today because we see it all the time. And it's one of the things I, strong sta- I stand strongly against is believers marrying unbelievers. You want to know what hell it's like before you get there? Just be a believer and marry an unbeliever. I've, I don't know how many times, how many hours I've spent counseling people, especially a lot of women who come to faith after they've married uh, and and um, and they're married to a heathen. They were a heathen. They get converted. They come to Christ, and then they get experience hell. And I just <clears throat> met a, a man. Uh, well, I've actually known him for a few years, but I I just heard the story of how he came to faith, and he was a Christian for five years before his wife came to faith. Now his wife is a beautiful Christian today, but she literally told me <clears throat> that before she became a Christian. She said, I was the devil to him. I did everything I could to destroy him and ruin his life. I did everything I could do to make him miserable. And then eventually, five years later, by the grace of God, she got converted. But there's never a guarantee on them getting converted. And and uh, and he's only subject to five years of it. Uh, he'd never really spoke bad about her. But when I asked him about it, he yeah, he agreed that she, she was tough to be around. So this is why we don't want to... Um, Mix the godly line with the ungodly line. But I know, and the New Testament addresses this too, that sometimes uh, two unbelievers are married and one of them comes to faith and, and we're supposed to try to stay together if we can and that God can use that to, to save the other person as it did in this story. But you just need to know you're in for a long, hard ride. And so that's why from the get-go, you don't marry unbelievers. I don't know how many times I've run into Christian women who ran off with some guy that they thought was above them, but he was an unbeliever. And then, you know, five years later, eight years later, ten years later, they're wanting to know, do I have grounds for divorce? And no, you have you have grounds for a slap in the face for a bad decision. But uh, if you can live together with him, you're supposed to live together with him. And so that theory doesn't make as very much sense to me. <clears throat> Is it a possibility? Yeah, we have to recognize it's a possibility because we don't have a lot of information here. We're going to slide down a little bit farther in this same verse. And so the other theory is that the sons of God saw the daughters of men and took and they were beautiful and married them. Now, the other theory, and this is actually the theory that's supported by the book of Enoch, which you have to take with a grain of salt because it's been uh, interpolated and it's been added to, I, I uh I'm not an expert on the book of Enoch. I'm trying to get the book of Enoch that the Coptics have, because uh, they put theirs in their Bible and about uh, in their canon of scriptures, they, the, the Coptic church in Ethiopia, they put theirs into their church, into their uh, Bible about the 5th century. So it's more than, more likely to be an, uh, an older version. But the version that I've seen right now of the book of Enoch, the first chapter or two seem to be pretty good, and then the rest of it kind of goes astray. Another source is the book of Jasher, and there's a lot of debate about whether the book of Jasher is the original book of Jasher. I actually found it very edifying. It kind of filled in some gaps. But again, it's not scripture, so you can't you can't hang your hat on it, and you can't say that's the way it is, because there's, neither one of those are in the canon of scripture. Uh, the exception being the book of Enoch, which is in the Coptic Christian Church, the Church of Ethiopia's Canon, but they, they include quite a few quite a few books of the apocrypha and deuterocanonical writings as well. So it says that that they took them. So we see in Job in two different places in Job chapter one and Job chapter two, where God is having an audience with uh, the angels, and there they're described as the sons of God. So there's a one possible uh, route is the uh, explanation. So if the sons of God are these angels. 
And this is what the book of Enoch says that they were. They're these angels that came together with women. I don't have it before me today. I should probably have it and should have prepared for that. But in the book of Enoch, it says that the that the, these angels who were watching, watchers, watcher angels, they were supposed to keep an eye on what was going on here on earth, lusted after women, and they took women as uh, as wives, and uh, they uh, uh, they produced offspring from them, and those became the Nephilim, those became the giants, these mighty men of old, which is described uh, in the here in Genesis and a few other places in in the Bible. Um, and this this seems to be the version embraced by the, the original uh, Jews, because we um, and we and it seems to be the version um, um, of the the way the early Christians understood it. And by the way, people who say <clears throat> the Book of Enoch and the Apocrypha are not quoted in the Old Testament, obviously you've never read your New Testament with an open mind because. In Jude alone, the Apocrypha, I mean, the book of Enoch is quoted and the Apocrypha is quoted. Um, and Peter quotes also, he, he talks about the magicians who resisted Jesus, and he names them Janus and Jambres. Well, our Bible doesn't name those two magicians who resisted Moses in Egypt. It just says there was two magicians. Uh, so how did he get the names Janus and Jambres? Well, it was handed down in some of these apocryphal writings, some of these deuterocanical books that we don't have in the uh, Protestant New Testament. And so they did use these other books as forces of the literature. And I can tell you, you'll have no idea what happened between the closing of the Old Testament of Malachi and the 400-year gap. When it closes in Malachi, uh, the the, um, the Medo-Persians are in charge, and Cyrus the Great and Darius have returned Israel back to Jerusalem, and that's how... And, and then uh, there's different warnings by different prophets about uh, against them. They've already been, both Israel was carried away, and then and 70 years, 100 years later, uh, Judah was turned was uh, carried away, and 70 years of uh, you know, enslavement in Babylon, they've returned. And so the Old Testament returns with all this good news, they're all back. And then they're beginning to struggle again with the different uh, unfaithfulness issues that they had in Malachi about giving and giving not their best, but their worst animals to sacrifice. Then Matthew opens up. When Matthew opens up, the Romans are in charge. Well, what happened in between? The only way you're ever going to know is you go take a theology class, and they'll tell you all about it, but I can tell you where they got all their information. The same place you can get it from is by the book of the Maccabees. You go to the Maccabees, and those are the history books that tells how Alexander the Great came in to... Um, into uh, into uh, Israel of that day, how they came into Israel, how Israel submitted to him the way they were supposed to have done, the same thing they were supposed to have done to Babylon, how he spared them as a nation, and as was prophesied in Daniel, he died at the, at the height of his power, and his kingdom was split up and divided between four of his generals. The problem for the land of Israel was they were stuck between the Seleucids in the south and the Ptolemies in the north. Two of the generals, when they divided up the territory, the dividing line, <coughs> excuse me, the dividing line fell right in the middle of Israel, actually pretty fairly near to Jerusalem. So there was constant wars during that time as the uh, the, the the powers in the Seleucid powers, which is also the line that came from Cleopatra, uh, the Seleucid powers uh, were very benevolent, and the Ptolemies were very dictatorial. They were tyrannical, and they tried to convert the Jews. They tried to call what they tried to do what they call Hellenization. They tried to Hellenize them, turn them into Greeks, and they refused to allow them to circumcise, and they refused to allow them to carry out many of the traditions and laws that Jews in the Old Testament were required to obey and follow. And it led to massive wars. And uh, Judas Maccabees was one of their great leaders. So when the New Testament opens, you're going to see two names that you didn't see in the Old Testament. You're going to see John. Everybody's named John or everybody's named Judas. Now, the reason people don't name their kids Judas today is that Judas sort of fell into disrepute when when Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus. And so it's not such a popular name. But when the New Testament opens... Almost everybody's named Judas. Two of Jesus' uh, 
apostles were named Judas, including Judas Iscariot. And then, uh, and one of Jesus' brothers was named Judas. Of course, in our Bible, they they call him by kind of the short version of the name Jude, and he and he wrote a very short letter, which in the back of our New Testament. But that name Judas became very popular because of Judas Maccabees. <clears throat> so, Judas Maccabees was this great general who fought very well. They overcome the Greeks again and again when they had elephants and they had all kinds of all the equipment and all the gear was going their way. And they won the battle again and again. And Judas Maccabees, in the end, tried to kill the general in charge of Ptolemy's army by rushing up underneath his elephant and stabbing the elephant in the heart with a spear. And when he did, unfortunately, the elephant fell on him and crushed him to death. So he was a great Jewish hero. So when you start opening the New Testament, you start hearing all these people named Judas. Well, they're named after Judas Maccabees. And as I said, Judas Iscariot sort of ruined that name. And you don't hear it used very much anymore. They might use the shorter Greek version, which is Jude, uh, but they don't use Judas anymore. So that's, if you don't know that, that that gap, and we talk about having a historical understanding of the scriptures, you don't understand what happened. So at that time, the Jews made a deal with a rising power in the West, because they were in constant conflict with these Greek powers, especially the Ptolemies. And they made a deal to with these people to the West called the Romans. If you'll come and help us and be on our side, then we'll work together with you. And so they sent um, they sent uh, Pompey to give them a hand. And when Pompey came in and defeated the Greeks and put his uh, foot symbolically on all of their necks and made them submit to Rome, the problem was Israel had invited, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, how should we put it? My father used to say this about a lot of antibiotics. He says, you're, you're bringing a tiger in to your house to kill the rats. Well, they'll kill the rats, but the problem is they keep eating. And that's what the Romans did. They took, they cut a deal, and, and Israel got a far better deal than most people did with Rome. They didn't have to provide um, troops for Rome's army, and they had several other things that were given because they sort of invited Rome. But when you invite the tiger in to stay, you don't be surprised that the tiger starts eating the inhabitants. And uh, so the Romans <clears throat> were very strong on law and law and order, and they were very severe in the way they administered it, although they were much fairer than the people that had um, that they removed in the Ptolemies and the other Greek rulers. So that's uh, how that history jumps and why it's so important to understand the history and why I'm just saying we shouldn't be afraid of the Apocrypha, the deuterocanical writings that exist. Actually, a lot of them have good information in there. I've read them several times. I find them generally edifying. <clears throat> the Roman Catholics, of course, twist them to make it mean what they want. And so they squeeze a couple of verses uh, and pull it out of context, even in the deuterocanical writings, to come up with praying for the dead and... and um, and that kind of, out some of their other false teachings. But they do the same to the New Testament. We don't throw out the, the New Testament or the Old Testament because the Roman Catholics twist it. But uh, again, um, there's some debate about them, but the point is that they do contain information, and that information is sometimes quoted in the New Testament by the apostles, which means they at least saw it as good Christian literature, uh, as good literature, and they were aware of the context and the content that existed in those writings. I'm not going to debate on whether they belong in the canon of Scripture or not. I'm, I'm not really concerned about that. So, <clears throat> when we look at what the early Christians said about this, I just want to go back to verse 4. Genesis 6, verse 4 says, Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. So, the the common theory with the early Christians, which seems to be the same in the book of Enoch and seems to be the same in the Deuterocanical writings, um, is that these... Uh, Angels, the sons of God, chose women, and the, those books tell us that, that they looked on women, they lusted after them, and they took them as wives. And, of course, when you combine the DNA of a human with an angel, you create these Nephilim, these giants, these, uh, these monstrous people. Now, the book of Enoch tells us these angels also did some other sins as well. They, they, uh, they begin to teach uh, a lot of things to humans that humans probably were not aware of before then, and uh, and led them uh, into various kinds of sin. And so they produced these, these Nephilim, these giant people. 
Now, there's problems with this theory too, by the way, because the, the Bible goes on to tell us, I mean, right here in Genesis 6, it says, <clears throat> the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. Excuse me. <clears throat> so how could they be on, on the earth afterwards? Because after the flood, the Bible tells us very clearly, just the next few verses, that I will wipe mankind who I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the earth and birds of the air, and and he destroys them all. Everything that was on the face of the earth was destroyed. So then those who believe that these Nephilim are the offspring of uh, angels and women also have a problem because we have Nephilim that pop up later in the scriptures. These are the sons of Rapha or the sons of Anak. So let's look at a couple of those scriptures. First one I want to look at is Numbers 13, 34 to 33. Numbers 13, 34 to 33. And you know the story. The spies have gone into the land. God brought Israel out of Egypt, and he was taking them right into the promised land from the get-go. They weren't supposed to spend 40 years in the wilderness wandering, but because of their sin, uh, that's where they ended up. And this was the sin that they committed. The sin was a sin of fear, a sin of faith. They chose to be afraid of what they saw, uh, what they heard about uh, was going on in the promised land. So let's read that account. It says, um, so you remember the story. God sent 40 spies into the promised land. Uh, uh, the, uh, the, I'm sorry, I'm, I think corrected. They sent uh, 12 spies into the promised land. The people asked for, the, for these spies, these scouts, these reconnaissance team to go in first. And they were supposed to go in and and find out what they could about the land and come back, and then the people were supposed to go in and fight. And uh, and so in verse uh, 31 through 33, the, Caleb and Joshua and these other ten unfaithful spies, they tell about what they saw on their 40-day uh, reconnaissance of the promised land. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack these people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak uh, came from, uh, come from the Nephilim. And we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes when we looked at some of them. So here it's referring to these giants or these great men, these Nephilim, and it's referring to them as the descendants of Anak. So we have a problem there with how do these uh, how do these Nephilim survive the flood? Because only the Bible is clear that only Moses, uh, Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives were the only people who survived. So, but there still was Nephilim there. So that kind of gives some some uh, validity to the possibility. That they were it, it, that there's something in the human gene that allows that um, to the validity of the sons of God being the faithful and versus the unfaithful. But let's look at First Samuel chapter 17. First Samuel 17 verse four, because it talks about it uh, about this again. And this is the one we're all familiar with. Uh, we're familiar with the story of David and Goliath. And the champion named Goliath was from Gath, and he came out of the Philistine camp, and he was over nine feet tall. And then it goes on to describe his army. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a coat of scale, and on his legs he wore bronze uh, uh, um, leggings, and he had bronze, a bronze javelin was slung on his back, and his spear shaft was like a weaver's rod. In other words, it was a big, huge, thick pole, and his iron point weighed 600 shekels, which I think says is about uh, eight pounds. And uh, and a shield bearer with him, went with him, and Goliath stood and shouted at the ranks of Israel. So here we have a Nephilim that David fights, and of course we're going to see this, the importance of why David picked up five stones uh, when he <clears throat> went against Goliath. Because if we look a little farther along in Second um, Samuel, I guess twenty one sixteen to twenty, it's a little bit longer section. Second Samuel. Chapter 21, verses 16 to 22. <clears throat> and so it says again there, once again there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. By the way, you're going to see there was the five cities of the Philistines, which was Gath, um, um, 
Gath. Uh, oh, all of a sudden the name escapes me. Um, anyway, we'll just look at it here together. Um, once again, there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines, and he became exhausted. So this is a, another battle with David and a giant. It doesn't go quite as well for David here. And uh, Ishibi Benoba, one of the descendants of the of the Rapha, okay, now that we already know the Rapha are the giants, the, the Nephilim, whose bronze seer herd weighed about 300 shekels, and I think that's about 8 pounds, and who's um, weighed and um, who was armed with a new sword, said he would kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zurai, came to David's rescue, and he struck the Philistine down and killed him. And then David's men swore to him, saying, Never again will you go out with us to battle, so that the lamp of Israel will not go, be extinguished. So David's fighting with this this Rapha, this uh, giant, this Nephilim, from, I mean, the descendant of Rapha, this Nephilim, <clears throat> and he's nearly exhausted, and he has to have a friend come out and help him win the battle against this giant. And then they say, David, look, you're the king now. You know, you're not. We're not going to risk you anymore. You can't allow you out on the on the battle lines anymore. We don't want our king to be killed. You're going to stay in the rear while we do the fighting now. <clears throat> and then it goes on to talk a little bit more. Because in the course of time, there was another battle with the Philistines at Gob. And at that time, Zebekiah, the Hushathite, killed Sapha, one of the descendants of Rapha. So this is another Nephilim, another giant. This is the second one we've heard about here. In another battle with the Philistines at Gob, Elahan, the son of Jari, Origim, just um, lucky you guys are not reading this uh, with me with these names, he was the Bethlehemite. He killed Goliath. Apparently, that's another Goliath that uh, existed <clears throat> at that time. Um, and then Goliath the Gittite, who was different than the Goliath that Jesus, that uh, David killed, who had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. In still another battle, which took place at Gath, there was a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in all, and he was descended from Rapha, another one of these giants defended from Rapha, none of, the, of these Nephilim. When he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimeah, David's brother, killed him. These four were descendants of Rapha in Gath, and they fell at the hands of David and his men. So what we learn, again, from the extra-biblical literature, not in the Bible, but from these other books that, are, uh, that existed, the Jewish books that were out there, uh, sort of like the Book of Enoch, and some of the other ones that were out there, is we learned that these were actually, there was a family of five, and there was, uh, there was Goliath, and then there were these ones, uh, who were all uh, related or even brothers, which makes sense now with why David chose five stones. I guess he figured, I'm going against Goliath, I'm going against, I may have to go against them all, and they had a reputation that they had these five Nephilim, who slowly were killed off by Israel in various battles. And then we have um, one more example in uh, Joshua 11, 21 to 22. Joshua 11, 21 to 22. Oh, here they are, here, These, uh, the five cities uh, in verse 22, it talks about Gath, Gaza, Ashdod, and uh, Joppa with another one, and there's uh, um, there's another city with the five cities of the Philistines. And now, uh, verse 22, where Joshua, chapter 21, that's in verse 21, we're going to start at verse 16, oh wait, Joshua 11, 21 to 22, sorry. <clears throat> 21. At that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites. Now, these Anakites, of course, are the, they're the descendants of Anak, who we've already heard. The, the, when I say the modern Nephilim, the modern ones in the days of Israel after the flood, they all descended, they all descended from Anak or Rapha. So, um, so it starts off here. And Joshua went out and he destroyed the Anakites. 
from the hill country, from Hebron and Deborah and Anah, and from all the hill country of Judah, from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them and their towns. No Anakites were left in, in the Israelite territory. Only in Gaza and Gath and Ashdod did any survive. So Joshua took the entire land, just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it <clears throat> as an inheritance to Israel, according to their tribal divisions, and the land was at rest from war. <clears throat> so we see these other examples of the giants, and I don't have time to go into it because the time is going away quickly, but uh, Caleb, who's one of my heroes of the Old Testament this period, when he, they're dividing up the land uh, that was left, they asked him, what section do you want? And he was 80 years old, and he said he still was as strong as his 40. So he chose the section where the annex were, where the giants were. And he said, I want to go there. I want to fight the giants. And, of course, uh, the, what's implied is he cleans out the giants, the Nephilim, in that area as well. But we can see, as this story continues, you still have giants left in a few of these Philistine cities, which later David and Israel have to deal with later including Goliath and his four brothers or or four other giants that were there too. So, what does this have to do with deliverance and what does this have to do with uh, with um, demons? Well, what the extra biblical literature tells us. Now, I want you to I want you to understand this. This is not in your scriptures. It's not there. And if you're trying to squeeze it in there, you're twisting verses to make it there. The only information we have this is in the early Christian writings and in some of these older Jewish writings, which are not included in the canon of Scripture. So they contain good information, but they're not actually Scripture. <clears throat> but in those writings, it tells us that these angels brought forth offspring with humans and they became the Nephilim. The book of Enoch tells us that the Nephilim multiplied and that the men, um, men had to serve the Nephilim. And so human beings were working to provide food and things for them, and apparently they couldn't provide enough. And the Nephilim, according to the Book of Enoch and some of these other sources of literature, became cannibals, and they began to eat humans. And that's and the, according to the Book of Enoch, that's one of the violences that was going on that brought about the flood. But we also read in the in the Book of Jasher and in Enoch, it says that God turned the giants, the Nephilim, against each other. And so that they began to fight with each other, and he made the watchers, he made the angels watch what was going on. And he had to, he made them watch as their children killed each other's children, and they slaughtered each other before the flood. Now, we don't have any biblical proof of this, but we do have these extra biblical writings, Jewish writings. And one of the things that tends to confirm them is when you're looking at the early Christian writings in the first 250 300 years after Christ, they affirm some of these things too. At least their understanding was the same as this, as recorded in these two books. Again, you can't make your case strictly from Scripture unless you're going to be very creative, um, uh, which we're not allowed to do. We're not allowed to add to or take away from the Scriptures. But based on these other things, we see that these giants existed. Now, in Peter, it tells us that there was angels who were cast into Tartarus. <clears throat> this is a whole other subject, <clears throat> because most modern Christians have no idea what happens when you die. They think when you die, you go right before the judgment, and then you're sent to heaven or hell. That's not what happens at all. The Bible is clear on this. The Jewish tradition is clear on this. The early Christians believed all of this until the Roman Catholic Church began to be creative and create the purgatory and all the rest of these things. But there's a dwelling place for the dead, which has two chambers, an upper chamber, which is called paradise, or the bosom of Abraham, and the lower chamber, which is called Tartarus. The lower chamber is a place of suffering. The upper chamber is, uh, is actually paradise. It's a description of a garden, maybe kind of equivalent to the original uh, uh, Garden of Eden kind of existence, where they await the judgment, which is when the Lord returns and he judges the living and the dead, as the scripture tells us. Uh, and then they'll be ca the, those in Tartarus will be cast into the lake of fire, Gehenna, which Matthew 25 tells us was prepared for Satan and his angels because of sin. We are the sought with them, and uh, and then uh, those who have been faithful, who have a, a, a obedient, love faith relationship with Jesus Christ, they will be sent to heaven and given different rewards there based on the fruit of their lives. 
But that doesn't happen until after the judgment. So everybody that passes away, according to the scriptures, and maybe we can uh, can teach on this at another time, because some of you right now are probably freaking out because you've never heard any of this. The reason you haven't heard it is every translation has some errors. One of the errors in the King James Version, which got passed on in English, was they translated the word Sheol, Sheol, which means Hades in, in Hebrew, there's the word Hades, which means the dwelling place of the dead. Both of those mean the dwelling place of the dead. And uh, and the term hell, which is the lake of fire. There was a, an error in the translation, and they translated all three words as one word, hell. So it's confusing in that. And so when you English speakers, uh, because of because of this, this little translation error, uh, English speakers have a tendency to misunderstand or not even be aware of the dwelling place of the dead, despite the fact that Jesus mentions it uh, a couple of times himself. And, uh, uh, and, and, but the point is, is this, where I was getting at by laying that background is, Peter says that there were angels who were cast into Tartarus, into this place of suffering, with heavy chains already. So who were these angels? Well, according to the books of Enoch, and according to Jasher and some of these other extra-biblical uh, writings, uh, those angels were these watchers that bore children. God punished them and put them in a place of suffering right now, awaiting the judgment. Uh, and uh, and then there was this problem that we have. The Nephilim, who are half human, half angels, assuming this context, this pretext is correct, <clears throat> they don't have souls like humans, and they don't have they don't have a spirit like an angel. So what happens to them? Well, what the extra-biblical literature says that they wandered the earth. They were not fit or able to go to Hades, either department, the upper department, a place of, uh, of, uh, of paradise or the bosom of Abraham, as Jesus refers to it, or the lower chamber of Tartarus, a place of suffering. They didn't have a human soul. So supposedly, these, these Nephilim, the spirits of these Nephilim, wander the face of the earth, seeking to occupy humans. And they are our demons today. So the modern, a lot of uh, people will tell you that that demons are actually fallen angels. I have some problems with that because the scriptures itself describes the ranks of angels as principalities and powers and, and, and authorities, and they have different ranks and structures, and some are higher and some are lower, and we run into that too also uh, with demons to some extent. But I think for me, the thing that makes the makes the hypothesis, and again, you cannot take the the bank, but makes the hypothesis that the Nephilim, and the spirits of the Nephilim, are the demons, is my dealing with demons. One of the things that I've learned with demons, everybody, uh, we know this. There's two. There, by the way, there's two serious problems with the Nephilim theory being, uh, being being the offspring of angels, because Jesus told us that the angels did not marry and given married, and, and they, they appear to be the sexless, sexless beings who can appear in human form. We don't have any, we don't have any examples of Jesus referring to the demons as fallen angels. <clears throat> um, and we have this, this problem that it seems that angels are sexless too. That's why I'm saying you can't take any of these things to the bank. So when we look at scriptures, guys, we have to admit there's things we don't know. I mean, 1,800 years, 1,800 years of scriptures is included, is wrapped up in eight chapters of Genesis. And uh, some of that is even before the fall into sin. So you were really getting a, a, a very thin sketch of what's going on. But my experience with demons is, having been in law enforcement, uh, I interrogated a lot of people through the years. And one of the things that I've always noticed with criminals I'm sure there must be some mastermind. They certainly have a lot of masterminds on TV. Uh, and um, But most of the criminals that I've dealt with involved in crime, uh, are, they're not very smart. You know, most of the time it's relatively easy to get them to confess, to get them to, to incriminate themselves. Sometimes they really they actually think they're pretty clever when they're actually making huge mistakes in the things they did. Kind of like that criminologists, assuming that that's true, because we're surrounded by so much propaganda now, you can you don't know up from down anymore in reality. But assuming that propaganda is true about that uh, guy that went into that um, boarding house and killed four people in there, and they left, and he was a criminologist who studied all about uh, mass murderers, and then supposedly he made all these mistakes, and he you know he he left his phone pinging from that location on two different times. 
and he left DNA behind and some of these things. <clears throat> I don't know if any of that's true or what's not true because you just can't believe anything in the news at, at nowadays. And um, framing people has become an art form, even in America. But um, but if that's true, that, that to me, that's kind of a typical criminal. They always think they're much smarter than they are. I had a case where we had a guy uh, who attacked five women in about two hours, tried to kidnap and rape them. And in each case, the woman got away, and they drove right to the police department and reported it. And so our officers were out going crazy. I was the shift supervisor at the time. We're trying to locate this guy. And here comes another woman in. A guy just tried to attack me at this place. And so now we're looking there. And, and then another woman pulls up. A guy just tried to attack me at such such a place. And so we have these women downstairs, and we have them all making sworn statements to us. And then we finally catch the guy. And so we do a quick lineup, and the women all say he's the guy. So um, <clears throat> I talk to the district attorney, and the district attorney tells me, well, what do you got? And so I tell him what I got. And he goes, well, actually, you don't have anything. Because we all know those were going to be, those are attempted sexual assaults that he's trying to kidnap. But he says, if just look at the evidence you had, he's grabbing the person, uh, the person closes the door on his arm or the person rolls up the window on his arm and drives away. And then, and, um, you know, the way that, that he just didn't have enough evidence to make the case. So he says, well, right now, all you have is misdemeanor assaults. You don't have any case. Even though it's clear, we all know that this guy was trying to kidnap and rape these women. But in each case, the woman got along, got away before it went far enough to make the case. So I sat down and I thought about it and I thought, hmm, how am I going to make a case? And how am I going to get this guy off of the street? So I went in in the interrogation and I just told him, I said, look, you know, all these women, I, I let him see the women identify him. I said, all these women are saying you're doing this. And I said, I know that's not what the real story is, right? I said, I know the truth is you just wanted to grab their purses. You just wanted the, the money from their purse, right? And he had to see his face light up. And uh, then he gave me a whole sworn statement about how he was trying to steal the money from their purses. But what he didn't know is he just pled to a felony, which is strong-arm robbery. And so now I did have good charges against him. And uh, and so I got, I got him a written statement. I got him to go on, on make an audio statement for me. And uh, and so we had good ground to put him out. Turn, turns out that the guy had just gotten out of prison, um, uh, the insane asylum slash prison, and about almost two days before, and uh, and he was in prison for sexual, uh, including sexual penetration on a male and all kinds of stuff. And so we were able to put him right back in prison. Now I tell you this story because you know the guy I didn't have a case. He didn't know I didn't have a case. But they're so dumb that I got him to plead to something that I knew wasn't true, but he pled to it, and he gave me statements, and he swore up and down, even in court, that he uh, had just been, he thought this was going to clear his record or make him look better, that he was just trying to steal their purses, and so we put him away on a felony for strong-arm robbery, a, a, a five attempts at strong-arm robbery. So my experience with demons is the same thing. If the angels are created higher than us, they're a higher being than us, have more intelligence than us and stronger and more powerful than us, why is it when I deal with demons, most of the time they're they're ignorant? Most of the demons I've dealt with, I've never really felt into any, run into any uh, demons that I've talked with that impress me with their intelligence. They do impress me with their, sometimes with their um, hard-headedness and their reluctance to obey and their ability to drag things out. But I've never been impressed with any of the demons I've had conversations with and I don't choose to converse with them unless I absolutely have to. <clears throat> but I've never been impressed with um, how smart or how clever they were or how tricky they were. I've, it's real obvious that they lie. They lie constantly. It's real obvious that um, that uh, they're stubborn and uh, and they choose, they try, they attempt not to obey when you use the name of Jesus to drive them out. But I've never been impressed with how clever they are. In fact, I can turn them against each other. I can get them to slip up in in conversation and admit things that they were that that maybe for twenty minutes they wouldn't tell me what their name was or who they were, and then I continue talking to them on different topics and then bring it back. And just like an ignorant criminal, it's they slip up and they give me the information that I needed uh, that they were trying to keep from me. So I've not been impressed with them, and that's what makes me think it's much more likely that they really are uh, these. These these disembodied spirits of angels and men 
wandering on the earth to torment men. Now, there are several other things. The early Christians tell us that all the stories of the Greek gods, Hercules and Adonis and all these things, and those gods were all embraced by the Romans with slight name changes. They say that all of those, the early Christians say that all of those stories of the mighty men of renown, they said those are stories of the Nephilim from before the flood. And so therefore, they, uh, they, what they, they maintained that, uh, that all these stories of, uh, of, the, of the Roman and Greek gods are actually just stories carried over from mankind from the, the uh, antediluvian period, the period from before the flood, and it's really the stories of the Nephilim. And then, of course, we know that the scripture tells us that when people are worshiping idols, they're not just worshiping uh, something for no reason. Uh, you know, the Shannon's out there in the home of idolatry with all those Hindu idols, uh, and, and that they worship those things. A lot of people worship them just from tradition, but the truth is these things have power because there's demons behind them. And demons are able to do things. Uh, and there's a reason why uh, people where I was in Asia and what I've seen in Africa, too, they'll bankrupt families, re- releasing the demon and then the demon coming back and releasing the demon and demon coming back. And the people have to pay constantly or sacrifice animal after animal, including their pets. And, of course, in ancient times, even other humans in order to get power with these demons, because the goal of every demon, ultimately, the goal of every demon is to kill you and to get you to kill someone else in the process. And if they could make you miserable and humiliate you and make a complete mockery of you with transsexual ideology and homosexuality and all these different and, and get you involved in prostitution and all these different things, they laugh at the, at the way they can humiliate humans when humans act ignorant uh, and allow them to reign and rule in their lives through idolatry or through open doors where we've allowed uh, these demons to come in. So the most probable, and I believe actually... Um, his name escapes me, but the guy everybody looks to for, for the original deliverance, modern deliverance information, um, can't think of his name now. But anyway, um, he, he felt the same way, that they were not fallen angels. And that makes sense to me. Now, I don't have all the answers. Derek and Prince. And if you think you got all the... Who was that? Derek Prince. Yes, Derek Prince. Derek Prince always maintained that they were not uh, fallen angels either. And uh, and when he first said that, boy, I really choked on it because I had been taught that they were fallen angels. And some people try to uh, make these uh, demons um, much more clever than they were. But my experience is they're not really clever. They're persistent. They're liars. Um, and uh, and I think they are Nephilim. Now, does that mean demons don't have a pretty good idea of, of human psychology? Well, of course they have a pretty good idea. They've been studying us for 6,000 years. They've occupied dozens of people dozens and dozens of people through the years. So they've been studying, but there's, there seems to be some kind of a filter that they're not able to follow everything. For instance, and I'll just share with this last thing and then try to then try to uh, close out this uh, time because I'm running out of time. But uh, one time I, <clears throat> I, I was casting out this demon, a very strong demon, and, uh, and the person who the demon was in had known me, had known me, uh, for years, had known me before I went to the mission field, knew me after I come back from the mission field. They had had a long, uh, she had had a long relationship with me and my family. She knew all about us, and she knew all about our our ministry. And yet, when we were driving out the demon, the demon got so mad, he slammed the table and, and stood up and tried to and growl at me. I think I've shared about this before. It probably would have really startled me, except at the time, I was trying to get my phone to work because I had been recording this deliverance. And so I was I was looking down at my phone, and when he jumped up and did all that stuff and put on his show, I told him to sit back down in the name of Jesus. Uh, but the demon wanted to know this. Who is this guy, and how does he know all this? Now, this is what makes me think there's kind of a filter between what they're able to learn and what they're able to do. Because if this demon, and apparently this demon had been in this young lady since her teenage years, maybe even before her teenage years, it had been in her with a very strong demon, um, and he was sort of, um, uh, I won't go into details, I'm running out of time, but he was a very strong demon, didn't want to go, and it had to work very hard to break him up and to get him out, and once we got him out, it just opened the floodgates. Everybody else had to go. He was kind of a, a gatekeeper demon, and yet he had probably been with her all his life. He could not have helped but know who I was, know who my family was, know about our ministry, and know what we did, and yet there he was asking 
Who are you? How do you know these things? How do you know this? Why do, where did you learn this? And so they basically think even when they're inside a person, they're not aware of everything that seems to be going on. Or at least in this case, in a couple other cases, there was things that the demon who's been riding along with this person, they, it's this spiritual parasite this person has had in their life for years, um, uh, why didn't they know the things that the person knew? And the demon was asking me questions. And, of course, I used my best, uh, my best police officer response, which was, uh, you know, I'm your worst, I'm your worst uh, nightmare. I'm a Christian who knows the authority and how to use the authority of Jesus' name. And that makes you the demon's worst nightmare. So what are demons? There's a possibility of fallen angels. I think that's remote. There's much more likely that they are the offspring of the Nephilim, these uh, original Nephilim, um, which are talking about before the flood, the, and and that they are neither human nor are they angels, and so therefore they don't have a system set up for them right now, or and that they wander the earth and they torment humans as demons, and they, and of course they always want the same thing. They want humans to bow before them, and they want to take humans' life. And I've actually heard the Nephilim actually say, "You're nothing but dirt. You're just dirt," referring to humans. Um, as if uh, they were something different than ha- having been human. So uh, those are a couple of reasons why I think that the that the spirits of the Nephilim. Now we still got a problem with that theory too. Is how do these giants pop up after the flood as the offspring of Rapha and of Anak? And so anyone who thinks they've got it all figured out, if they do, they didn't use scriptures. And by the way, some of the things that I'm using right now not exactly scriptures. That's why I say you can't be adamant about these things. But what the early Christians believed was they were the spirits of the Nephilim. What a lot of the Jewish commentators believed was, or the Jewish extra-biblical literature was, that they were the spirits of the Nephilim, of these giants, these men of renown, who the Romans and the Greeks created into their gods. And if you know anything about the Roman and Greek gods, they were just like the Nephilim. They were backstabbers, they were cheaters, they were involved in incest, they were taking advantage of their constant politics. Yeah, it sounds like politics today. That's what they were the sponsors of, and that's what they were behind, and uh, all the activities they did to degradate humans and themselves. So it sounds like you get a snapshot of what life was like in the pre-flood period of time. You can't be adamant about any of these things. You can't take it to the bank. But I think there's a much stronger case that the Nephilim are actually the uh, disembodied spirits of, I mean, the the demons are actually the, the bodies are the, the spirits of these disembodied uh, giants, these people of mixed heritage, half human, half angels. And the early Christians would agree with me. Some of the extra biblical literature agrees with me. The Bible just doesn't answer all these questions. So uh, hopefully, hopefully this was helpful as we wrap things up here today. My friend, great teaching today. Live with Brother Carl Henderson. What shall we title this for the archive? Who uh, who are the demons? Who are the demons? I love it. Okay, Brother Carl, give out contact information on you and your ministry. How they can reach you, how they can support your work. Okay, well, I'm on Facebook at uh, uh, carlhenderson.96. And uh, and if you want to support our ministry, we, we have outreaches still going in Asia and elsewhere where we worked in the past. We still support local missionaries in the field. That's at PayPal. It's Pastor Carl Five. Boy, um, Pastor Carl Five at Yahoo.com. I think it's at Yahoo.com, right? Yes, sir. It's, it's Pastor Carl Five at Yahoo.com. Fantastic, brother Carl. And, I want to uh, thank you for coming on. Uh, they can add you on Facebook as a friend. Um, that's right. Look at your schedule for July and get me some dates. It's wide open, and I've just started on it. Okay, we'll look at that. My friend, God bless you. You want to close us in prayer? Yes. Father God, we admit as humans, we don't have all the answers, but we know you have all the answers. But Lord, your scripture tells us that the secret things belong to God. They belong to you, but the things that are revealed belong to us. Lord, the issue with us is not the things that we don't understand. The issue with us is the things that we do know and we do understand, and yet we fail to obey, we fail to 
live our life based on those principles. So, Father God, as we look at these things, hopefully this is instructional. Hopefully it gives us information that will be helpful in the future. But, Lord, we admit that some of these things we just don't really have solid answers on. Derek Prince believed like this, and I believe like this, and I think some people who have been in deliverance believe like this. The early Christians believe like this. The extra-biblical literature that the Jews wrote seems to indicate this as well. And so, Lord, we uh, we want to... Uh, we want to believe what you want us to believe. We want to do what you have us to do. But, Lord, we don't have all the answers. What we do know is you gave us the authority in the name of Jesus to drive out demons. You gave us the authority to heal. You gave us the authority to appeal to the throne of God through the name of Jesus. And you you taught us that whatever we ask in your name, that will the Father do, that the Father might be glorified in the Son. You taught us that the power above all powers, the name above all names is Jesus Christ, and that every knee will bow and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now we as your children, as Christians, Father God, we come and we willingly kneel right now, we willingly confess right now the name of Jesus, that he is Lord, that he's our King, he's our Savior, our Redeemer, he paid the ransom, he set us free, and he trampled and stomped the head of Satan, that serpent, that great dragon, uh, and he gave us the victory. And so we walk and we live in that victory that comes from the name above Je- the name of Jesus, that name above all names. So Lord, we may not have all the answers, but we do have the name and we have the directions, we have the commands, and we have your authority, the authority that comes from that name. And so, Lord, we rely upon you, we lean upon you, we put no trust in the arm of the flesh, but we put all our trust in you. So, Lord, I pray that this information is helpful. I hope it keeps us from um, from um, becoming, um, uh, uh, just be, being like a dog, chasing our tail, and gets us back on track to doing the work of the Lord using the name of the Lord to rescue those who are perishing in sin, to set the captives free, and to bring forth new life in those who are trapped in this snare of sin and death, and who are slaves to Satan, and who are slaves to the power of wickedness, and that they can be ransomed by that ultimate um, the hostage rescue van, Jesus Christ, and it's his name and his blood that saves us and sets us free. And because of that, we give you the glory. You deserve all the glory. The earth is yours, the fullness thereof, and all that dwell in it belong to you. All that dwell in it belong to you. And you will see that justice is done. But we thank you, Lord, that mercy triumphs over justice with you. And that's what we count on in our lives and our walk with you. Lord, help us to be obedient and to be loving and to be like Jesus in our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Great word today, brother. And uh, appreciate you coming on. We'll see you again real soon. Love and appreciate you. God bless you. You too, Shannon. God bless Omega Man Radio. Thank you. Folks, that was a great teaching. Let's save that. we got King Ran Ritchie coming up next. Stand by. <laughs> 